But if you need a Bible, if you would, please raise your hand. We have a couple of ushers coming down the aisle, and you can receive a copy of God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, put your name in that one. Take it home. Go read God's Word. That is our gift to you. So again, James chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. And that's found in the Blue Bibles on page 1013. If you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. James chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. This is God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You may be seated. Father, we give you praise and thanks, glory and honor, not just for what you have done, but for who you are. So, Father, I pray that you would bless your word, that it would go out and not come back void. We thank you that your word does indeed do the work. I pray, God, for the hearers, that they will have ears today to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Father, may I have love and compassion for your people and treat them as truly the sheep of your pasture. Oh, God, we thank you and bless you for this stewardship and pray um, that you would use this time for your glory, for your namesake, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 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 So when we're looking here at the book of James, one of the major themes in the book is to mature the believer. It's not just about the person that hears the word, but it's the person that hears the word and also does the word. See, this is very important. The Lord is all about growing his people, and that's by any means necessary. And usually this comes in the form of testing through trials. Ultimately, the end goal is for us, God's people, to look more and more like Jesus. We are being shaped continually and conformed more and more into the image of the Son. And throughout the book of James is this underlying question, will you take his word to heart in the midst of trials? In chapter 1, we see the test of perseverance and the test of how to handle temptation and also the test on how to respond to his word. In chapter 2, is the test of if we show favoritism and the test of the righteous to do righteous things. In chapter 3 is the test of the tongue and the test of choosing godly wisdom. In chapter 4 is the test of being in the world but not of the world and our total dependence upon God. And in chapter 5, where we are today and where we land, is the test of patient endurance and how we respond to one another. Now tests, they come in many forms. Some are difficult, others are easy. Some tests you can prepare for, and others you cannot. But the thing that all tests have in common 
is that they were designed to prove that you know what you know. And for the Christian, it's who you know. And if you're joining us today for the first time, we are going through a series on the church and how to live out the one another's. And today we're going to zero in on the do not grumble against one another here in James. So the thing about grumbling is that it's the fruit that springs from a deeper issue, an issue of the heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So James gets to the issue at hand with two questions for today. The first one is, in the pressures of life, which we all go through, how is your heart while you patiently wait upon the Lord? The second one is, what is our attitude towards our brothers and sisters as we do so? So let's think about these questions as we look at our text for today in James 5, 7 through 9. Uh, James, in this section, gives us three commands, one warning, and one motivation. In the text, you see the three commands are, be patient, in verse 7, establish your heart, in verse 8, do not grumble, in verse 9. And the warning is, brothers and sisters, we will have to give an account. We see that there in verse 9. And the motivation is the judge is standing at the door, also in verse 9. So let me read the text once more, and then we will dive in. James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James says, be patient, therefore, brothers. And this is the first thing that James says after assessing the oppressive situation in which his people find themselves. They were treated wrongly from the rich. And James is reminding these Christians to remain patient, to suffer long while waiting upon the Lord. And these brothers and sisters were of lower economic status, the working poor, and they were feeling that injustice or justice had eluded them. So you see in verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're now doing something. They're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is straight trifling. These brothers who worked hard to earn a decent day's wage, and rather than receive what they earn, the rich held back on the money. In fact, he defrauds them, which indicates that this was through some type of deceptive means. So in other words, they pulled the okey-doke on them. But two major things we notice in this passage or in this section here, that God sees the injustice that is done and God will fight their battle. Now we see this just in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is a picture of God as a great military leader with an army behind him, as if God even needed an army. But what it shows 
is that God has declared war against the injustice of his people. This is like somebody getting bullied on the block, and the bully doesn't know that you have a big brother that's just waiting to come to your rescue. And as soon as you tell him the situation, he's like, don't worry, it will be okay, I got you. And these words both have a way of encouraging you and striking fear in the bully. God is against the bullies and the oppressors. Malachi 3.5 says, in the context of judgment, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The people under this type of oppression needed a reminder to be patient brothers. God is saying, don't worry, it'll be okay, I got you. The Lord of hosts is coming for the bullies. And now you know, typically our default in situations like this is to react, to defend, to seek our own justice, to take matters into our own hands. But vengeance and standing up to injustice are two separate things. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but this does not mean because we're Christians we are just doormats. And we know this from Malachi 6.8 where he says, he has, told, what have I, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. We know this to be true because even earlier in the letter of James, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. God's heart is for those in the most helpless position. There's been this tension that is displayed all throughout redemptive history. One hand is justice, the other is waiting upon the Lord. The prophet Hosea in Hosea 12.6 is a perfect example. He brings this indictment to Israel and Judah, and then he calls them to repent. He says in verse 6, So you, by the help of God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. There is this both and dynamic at work in the life of the oppressed and yet hope for God's people. But in this particular context, James is highlighting that the fruit of the spirit of patience is especially needed in the midst of this particular stressful trial. Patience until, the rest of verse 7 says, the coming of the Lord. And this is something that we have to take hold of by faith because this is not an easy thing. Now, we just came back from Thailand about a month ago. And in Thailand, we was teaching conversational English. There was a school and a church connected. And literally right across the street from where we were serving, was one of the largest mafia-run red-light districts in the area. And there's a ministry there called Rahab Ministries, and they work with these women, they share the gospel, and they serve them. But overall, it's making a small dent in, in what's really going on over in that area. And as I wondered, after hearing this briefing, I wondered, what, where is the justice in this? 
What, what about the Johns who lure and entice these young girls? What about the city officials who turn a blind eye to this industry? And I thought, how long, O oh Lord, where is the justice? And in this particular passage, it has given me hope that one day justice is coming. Amen. And this is the same hope that James points his people to. He says, this patience is to suffer long, to persevere and remain steadfast while waiting. And James compares this waiting to a farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And now you think about a farmer's job, right? It's to plant and it's to wait. It's God who sends the rain and it's God who produces the fruit. So yes, this points to the farmer's patience and the patience that we are supposed to have, but more so, it points to our God's great faithfulness. So Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology book, he says the faithfulness of God is of the utmost practical significance to the people of God. It is the ground of their confidence, the foundation of their hope, and the cause of their rejoicing. Amen. And then he continues to say, it saves them from the despair to which their own unfaithfulness might easily lead. It gives them the courage to carry on in spite of their failures and fills their hearts with joyful anticipation. So we can have joy in patiently waiting because of God's great faithfulness. Amen. I remember Sister Abby shared with me uh, this past week after her meetup with, I think it was Eli, and she said something that really stuck out in my mind about God's faithfulness. She said, if you're going to doubt anything about God and his word, train yourself to doubt your doubts. I said, that's good. <laughs> that blessed me. Train yourself to doubt your doubts. And in this, this is why we can patiently wait, knowing that if God has said it, it will come to pass. Hey. So family, Jesus is coming back. Right. And this is a promise. To some, it's an encouragement. But to others, it's terrifying. Here's what we know about this great and dreadful day of the Lord. Number one, that he will return. John 14, 3 makes it clear, I'm going to prepare a place and I will come back to take believers with me. There's an eternal place that is being prepared for us in the Father's house for all who believe. Number two, no one knows the exact time or hour. Matthew 24, 44 says, he will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Thessalonians highlights this even more when it speaks about his arrival being like a thief in the night, unaware and suddenly. And three, Jesus is the Savior, but let us never forget that he is also the judge. Ecclesiastes 12 says, and he will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 25 says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And will he place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
So it's not a matter of if, but when we stand before him, the judge of both the living and the dead, what or whose merit will we stand? See, the bad news is if you stand on your own merit, on your own goodness, on your own righteousness, you're doomed. Scriptures is clear that there's none righteous. There's no not one. In fact, we all fall short of God's holy and just standard. We would be condemned to hell. And hell is a real place, family. Contrary to popular belief that hell is a gangster's paradise, it's not. The way the Bible describes hell is that's where the flames are not extinguished, where the worm dies not, eternal darkness, and weeping and gnashing of the teeth. See, we have to pause to talk about this bad news so that the good news can be exceedingly good. And the good news is that God, who is rich in mercy, in the fullness of time, sent his son while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, holy and perfect and righteous and fulfilled every commandment, died in our place. He died the death that we should have died. And when he went to the cross where justice, where God the Father's justice and mercy met, he died and was buried, but he didn't stay buried. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving who he said he is, And that he fully satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Family, that's good news. And for all who believe and receive this message have the right to become children of God. So if this is you after service, we would love to talk to you more about this. So then James, he goes back to the close of the farmer's analogy. And he says in verse 8, be patient. And this is not a passive waiting, but an opportunity for us as believers to strengthen our hearts. You see there in the B portion of verse 8, establish or strengthen your heart, for once again, the coming of the Lord is at hand. So this word established comes from the same idea of being immovable in faith and hope in Christ. One who does not waver, it's like an anchor in a storm. When winds and rains come against your ship, that there is something that is holding it steady. And for the Christian, the establishing of your heart is remaining grounded and rooted in the anchor, which is Christ Jesus. In Psalm 112, 7 to 8, he is not afraid of bad news. The psalmist says his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So there are trials of life on one hand and temptations of sin on the other. And the believer is called to have this unshakable, resolute focus that comes, whatever comes what may, with eternity in view, I will not be moved. So it's good to know these things, but how do you take hold of them? When you and I are in the middle of something that is beyond us, what should we set our hearts on? So here are some truths to consider in regard to strengthening your heart. Know and rest. Know and rest. 
know our hearts will be strengthened in trials when we consider that nothing comes into our lives except by the will of God. This is the sovereign care of God the Father for his children. He's creator and sustainer of the world, and yet he's concerned with the very hairs on our heads. Know that our hearts will be firm in the trial and rest knowing that God is working these things out for our good and for his glory. The once cruel master of trouble is now the good servant that trains us and perfects us. Know your hearts will be established in trials and that our time of suffering is limited. Rest knowing eternal peace and joy await us. Family, this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers passing through, and these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a weight of glory. And I know there's times when you just can't see it, but we have to take hold of this by faith and rest on the promise of God that he will never leave us or forsake us. Know your hearts and persecution will be settled when we think of the fearful judgments of God that await those who afflict his church. And finally, know our hearts are settled when we trust in Jesus and his word. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when our hearts are full of knowing and resting in God and his truth, it squeezes out our tendency for grumbling against one another. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And James can give these commands to be patient and to establish your heart because of the very next phrase you see there in verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Family, are you ready? It's amazing to see the verses associated with Christ's arrival and where and what his people ought to be doing. In the shortness of time, Remaining, we need to be about what he has called us to do. It's a motivation to live for and serve Christ by serving one another. And this is why coming to church and really living out the one another's are so important. And there's two verses that talk about this while living in light of his return. Hebrews 10, 23 and 24 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This encouragement to persevere requires community. On Thursday night, our brother Asa and Dr. Regina actually uh, was talking about trauma-informed community, and one of the many things that stuck out there was being attentive to one another. And here's the thing. When you're not here, we miss you, right? And not only that, but you also miss out on being or on experiencing trauma healing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 
4, 7 through 10 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. Wouldn't it be something that on the day of the Lord's return, that we would be found gathered together as a church practicing these one another's? ARC, by God's grace, I see us doing that. But we as elders, we pray that that would be more and more. And these one another's are not meant to be a checklist that you check off. This is actually a spirit-led endeavor. Uh, we are dealing with real people with real life issues. And it's not what you say or what we do, but it's how you say it and also what you think that matters to God and to others. So we see here that James lets us know that when we face outward pressures, we are susceptible to impatient, impatience, weak hearts, and grumbling. So he gives the third and very specific command here in verse 9. He's saying, do not turn on one another by grumbling against one another. So we need to see, number one, what does grumbling look like? Grumbling is a sigh or an inward groan or murmur, sort of like a silent complaint that springs up from your heart. And under different circum difficult circumstances, like affliction or pressure, even the godliest of Christians can lose sight. Theologian Anthony Byrd writes, grumbling is a mark of impatience and an indication that faith has failed so that what was meant for a test has become a temptation. Grumbling against others is a sin that occurs whenever we lapse into thinking that the world is not fully under God's control. It shows a lack of self-control in the face of provocation, and it is fueled by feelings of frustration, hurt, or anger. Grumbling is an attempt to defend our interests or to get back at those whom we perceive to have wronged us, end quote. So this testing of our faith and avoiding the temptation to sin is exactly what James has been warning the church since chapter 1 of this letter. In James 1, verse 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So this connection, rather than counting in all joy, we count up our problems, and then inner grumblings begin to happen. And this is not to say that we are people excited about pain, but having a perspective in the trial that is not meant to destroy us, but to grow us up. And take heart that we have a sympathetic Savior who identifies with our weaknesses and intercedes on our behalf. That's good news. And so James says, do not be tempted to grumble especially in the middle of trials. Now, temptations do come, but they're not from God. And chapter 1 is helpful once again in understanding the context in which James is writing. 
He says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the trials they were experiencing was only a test to make them look more like Jesus, not more like the devil. And they had to pray for wisdom to discern the difference between the testing of their faith and the temptation of their flesh. And now he's telling them, do not grumble against one another. So when he says brothers in chapter 5, verse 9, this is a very real threat to the unity of the church and the consequences of the individual. Now, this letter he calls a family meeting. Notice the amount of time he uses the word brother. It's really four times in the span of verses 7 through 12. Now, some commentators, when looking at this verse, would say that the grammar that's used would indicate that this was a common practice that was taking place among them. So James is not saying, don't do this. He's saying, stop practicing this. So with that insight, does this mean that as Christians, we can never complain? Well, Romans 8.23 says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Psalm 142 says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And when you think about the Psalms of Lament, uh, the Holy Spirit is, in a very real sense, teaching us through the Psalms how to express ourselves in faith to God. In sorrow, in Psalms 137, in anger, in Psalm 140, when fearful, in Psalm 69, in confession or confusion, in Psalm 102, for repentance, in Psalm 51, and disappointment in Psalm 74. We cry out to the Lord first so that we can better interact with our brothers and sisters to help carry one another's burdens. So the second part of verse 9 is the warning and the motivation. And we see there in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So we who believe in Jesus will also stand before the judgment seat of God to give an account. And now Jesus promises that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Paul also confirms this, that when he writes in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So James is warning that the judgment for the Christian is actually loss of rewards. Second John 8 says, watch yourself so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. First Corinthians 3.13 says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. So James links this directly to the loss of rewards with grumbling, the very thing many of us may have taken for granted in the church. So when we make a practice of inward, unexpressed grumbling against a brother or sister in Christ, we behave in a way that is inconsistent with our profession. So three things this communicates when we grumble. One, it communicates rejection of the very people for who Christ died for. And at the same time, forgetting that Christ has accepted us and them with all their faults. Number two, we elevate ourselves as better than and forget Christ's patience with us. Number three, we forget that God is sovereign over those he has called as members of his body. So think about this. Your brother or sister here at ARC is your brother or sister by God's design. We should steward them as gifts from God and do not grumble against them. The reality is, if we grumble against the gift, what are we communicating to the gift giver, which is God himself? And with this perspective, it better helps us appreciate the reason for the warning in verse 9. The command to be patient, establish your heart, don't grumble. The warning, lest you be judged. And now the motivation is the judge is standing at the door. So as we grumble in the doorway and the judge is right at the door, we see in the text that there is not just a certainty of Christ's return, but also a suddenly. His return is as close as our very next breath. And when James says, behold, he is saying, listen up, pay attention. God has not forgotten and he will bring all things into judgment. And James asks an important question of the church that has significance for us today. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now notice the outward conflict always starts inwardly. It causes fights, quarrels, and it even affects our prayer life. So by way of application, my desire now and for us as a body is to recognize and repent at the place of the murmur against our brother and sister. What are your passions? What are secondary issues that you have elevated to the place of first importance? Has it resulted in the breakdown of unity or grumbling or break in fellowship? Is it politics, misunderstanding and communication, mannerisms that may rub you in the wrong way? Is it envy? Is it jealousy? Is it resentment, pride? against your brother or sister? Even husbands and wives, have you had some level of bitterness towards your spouse that has resulted in this type of inward grumbling that causes division 
even in the same household? What would it look like if we serve and treat and love one another as if Jesus was coming back tomorrow? How would it inform the way we preach and teach on Sunday, sing in the music ministry, serve on the hospitality team, teach in children's ministry, usher and greet guests, check the sound in the sound ministry? How would this inform the time we spend with our children, our spouses, our brothers and sisters, and even the lost? This secret grumbling and murmuring may go unnoticed by people but they never go unnoticed by the God who sees and hears all. God opposes the proud, but the good news is he gives grace to the humble. So we may walk in grace, and we pray that that would be so, while we wait patiently upon the Lord, while we strengthen our hearts, not grumbling against one another, and knowing that Jesus is coming soon. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. So we thank you, Lord, that your work, your word does the work and it does surgery in our heart, Lord. Transform us, change us from the inside out. Help us not to grumble against one another. Help us to establish our heart. Help us to look for your soon coming. Oh, God, we love you, and it's because you first loved us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. At this time, we're going to prepare for uh, communion. So if you would, please stand. And within your program, we have the covenant there.